be reading Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O God, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. David was a man on the run, and as a man on the run, he didn't know quite where to turn. And thinking about the background for Psalm 54, the psalm for which we're studying this evening in the summer in the psalms that we're doing on Sunday evening, just picking various songs and going through them uh, textually, contextually, and looking into seeing application on these things, it's astounding to me how long God allowed between the time that David was actually anointed in 1 Samuel 16 and the time that he actually ascended and became the king in 2 Samuel. Do you realize that it was a matter of time that was about 15 years from the time that he was initially anointed by the Lord until the time that Saul would be dead and Jonathan would be dead, all the house of Saul would be diminished to the point where it wasn't going to pose a threat and David was going to finally get his chance to sit on the throne. God had anointed or had Samuel come and anoint David, and yet it doesn't necessarily seem like David knew what he was being anointed for there in 1 Samuel 16. David, after that time, spent about seven years within the palace of Saul, where he was playing the, uh, the harp, where every time a distressing spirit would come uh, upon Saul, that David would be there to play soothing music for uh, the first king of Israel. And as David did that, Saul, the distressing spirit, would leave him. And yet something happens in 1 Samuel 17. Something that I don't believe Saul expected and certainly uh, something that Israel didn't expect. David slays a man who is nine feet tall by the name of Goliath. And by slaying the hero of Gath, the Philistine champion, what happened was is that when people came back in to Saul there in 1 Samuel 18, they began singing a new song. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. The Bible says that Saul eyed David from that day forward. He said what more could they attribute to him other than the crown? Saul eyed David from that day forward. Can you imagine what that phrase or what that looks like? Saul eyed David. Now, I, I think it's more, you know, looking through squinted eyes and thinking, what is he after now? From that time in 1 Samuel 18, David would go on the run away from Saul as Saul tried to pin him a number of times to the wall with his spear as David played music in his house. And David, as he went along and went uh, to different places, what David found along the way were both people that were friendly to his cause and friendly to try and preserve his life, both Israelite and non-Israelite. But what David would find is that there were people that were against him, even among the Israelite camp and among the Israelite people. 
What we find here for the background of Psalm 54 is given right there under your uh, title for Psalm 54. And that's uh, uh, in the subscript. It says, as a contemplation of David, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? And you go back in your Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 23, particularly verses 17 through 20, uh, 29, and you're going to find this occasion that David is there and he's hiding in the wilderness and he's hiding in the forest. And the Ziphites come out and they talk to Saul and say, Saul, we know where David is. Saul, we know where David is, and we're glad to turn him over to you. And Saul says on that occasion, strangely enough, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. They didn't have compassion on David. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But that's one of the occasions where the Ziphites squealed, where the Ziphites ratted out David as he's running and hiding from Saul. During this eight-year period, there's actually two occasions where the Ziphites came and did the same thing. The second you're going to find your Bible in 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26, it says that the Ziphites came and they told Saul, David's hiding among us. David's hiding in our land. Come get him, Saul. And both times, David, by the providence of God, by the help of God, escaped from the hand of Saul. Yet at the same time, you have to appreciate the fact that David is on the run these eight years. And even among places and people that he thought that he was safe with, David found friend at both foe in unlikely places throughout those eight years. But he had absolutely one constant that I think is important for us to understand. And that is Jehovah God. David had the God of his salvation, the God that he called a number of occasions, a number of times, his helper. And as he was able to cry out to the God who he knew would always be there for him and always be his helper, I imagine David charting a course and running through the woods and trying to escape Saul and his soldiers. As he's trying to escape, he prays this prayer and this contemplation here in Psalm 54 as he's escaping for his life. Where do you turn when the bottom is dropped out of your life? Where do you turn when you feel like there are people who ought to be friendlies that are now shooting at you and you're not exactly sure why? Where do you turn when there's difficulty and sorrow that comes, to your, comes your way and enemies that arise up from the most unexpected places, things that you, people that you would have never thought this person is against me and this person is, is antagonistic towards me? I submit to you this evening that our help, even today in the 21st century, was the same for David as he writes these words a thousand years before Christ ever walked this earth, some 3,000 years ago. The one constant that David had in the God of his salvation, Jehovah God, is the same hope and the same confidence that we have. He is still the God who is our helper. Let me notice with you four things about the God of our help from Psalm 54 this evening. We'll make some applications along the way. Notice number one, how does God help me? How does God help me? He helps me, he helps you, he helps his people by the power of his name. By the power of his name. Notice how David begins this psalm of contemplation. Save me, O God, by your name. And vindicate me by your strength. There is power in the name of God because David otherwise wouldn't have called upon the name of God if there hadn't been power involved in it. 
You look all throughout your Old Testament, and one of the great Bible studies that you could possibly do, one of the greatest Bible studies you could do, is talk about and write down and make a list and understand all those Hebrew words and phrases that refer to God who is and who has power in his name. The Bible calls God, here in this case, Elohim. That's actually the very first title in the way that we're introduced to God there in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, Elohim. The majestic one, the one who is not bound by time and space, the one who is over all physical matter, the one who sits majestic in the heavens, in the beginning, Elohim, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And yet Psalm 54, verse 1 says, save me by your name, O God, Elohim. Save me, O God, by your name. Another name for God, kids, uh, young people at camp. I have the privilege almost every year of singing kind of as a tradition, El Shaddai, El Sheldai, El Eliana Adonai. All of these Hebrew phrases of who God is, El Shaddai, that's actually God Almighty, God who is powerful. He's introduced to Abraham like that in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, El Elyon, that's a positional title for God. God who sits most high, Genesis chapter 14, talking about uh, uh, El Melchizedek, the priest of God most high. That's who he is. That's where he sits. There is power in his name because his name is synonymous with who he is and his strength and his greatness. In fact, when we turn to our New Testaments, isn't it remarkable how throughout the history of the church, all throughout the book of Acts, and this was one of the things we brought out in our study uh, some months ago, is how many times the early disciples called upon the name of Jesus. How they took the name of Jesus and they did things by the name of Jesus. Peter, when he's healing the man by the, uh, the gate beautiful, he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked. In fact, when Peter and John stood before uh, the council for the first time, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, you remember Peter's statement. He said, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved other than the name Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, verse 18, there's something about who he is and the fact that as we call upon his name, as we appeal to his authority, there is power within that. Because what we're appealing to is his strength, we're appealing to his benevolence, we're appealing to his deliverance. David says, save me, O God. Save me by your name. Save me and vindicate me by the power of your strength. Christians, we may never be in a situation in our lives where we fight a court case all the way to the Supreme Court of land. But the idea of the Supreme Court is once the Supreme Court rules, that's the final word. There's no more other appeals that you can make. And yet what we have is so much more than the Supreme Court and that by the power of the name of Jesus, we are able to appeal to the God of heaven, El Elyon, El Shaddai, Elohim, Jehovah. Have you thought about the name of Jesus and the name of God in your trials, in your difficulties? And how in so many ways, when people face difficulties and trials, you know what they'll do? They'll take the name of God or they'll take the name of Jesus and they'll use it in a way that's almost, that, well, it's not almost, it's blasphemous. Because they're calling upon the name Jesus in a way that's flippant. That's not us. That's not us. 
what David was doing was far from flippant because he knew the God who is his helper and the God who is the one of salvation would hear him and would answer. Number two, God is my helper. How does he help me? How does he help you? God helps me by answering prayers. By answering prayers. Verses two and three, hear my prayer, O God, Elohim. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Why? For strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life and they have not set Elohim, God, before them. As David cries for deliverance, as he perhaps places that trail through those woods away from the land of the Ziphites, trying to find his next refuge, as he's thinking about God and he's doing uh, a calling upon God's name, you know what else he's doing? He's praying. He's praying on the run. And as he's praying on the run, he says, I'm praying on the run, God, because there are strangers who have risen up against me. That word stranger is, well, we use the term stranger, stranger danger. It's people I don't know and I want to stay away from. It's in the Hebrew, literally, people that don't think and don't reason from the same place that I do. That's a stranger. People that don't think and don't reason from the same place I do. And David says, here's these people that are not thinking and not reasoning the same way that I am. And God, they've risen up against me. But notice he doesn't stop there. He says, it's not just strangers, but it's also oppressors have risen up against me. Oppressors have sought after my life. This is kind of implied based upon the last statement that these are people that David does know. In fact, the word for oppressor is this, people who are tyrannical, people who are violent and powerful and positions of power. I'm thinking about Saul. All David ever did was follow the will of God. All David ever did was put his trust and his faith in God. And he's got the first king of Israel moving every single stone in the land to try and find him so he can take his life. And all David did was call upon the Lord and trust in the Lord and follow God through deliverance to the point where he killed the, the, Goliath, he killed the, the giant of Gath. He's got strangers and he's got people in powerful positions that are after him. And as he's on the run through this forest hiding, he's praying. The Bible teaches us that God hears the prayers of those who are walking in step with him. The word the Bible uses routinely is righteous. And the literal meaning of righteousness is being in step with God. Here's what God is doing. Here's what God is saying. And I want to do those things. And I want to follow that. The Bible says a person like that is righteous. We talked to it just for a moment a little while ago with the kids thing about being upright of heart. That's the same idea as being righteous. And if God hears our prayers of us who are trying to live in step with God, that's all that David ever tried to do is live in step with God. And the Bible tells us things like pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. Luke 18 verse 1, Jesus told a parable so that men always, always, always ought to pray and not lose heart. Luke 21 verse 36, Jesus, one of the last things he said to his disciples, you make sure that you watch therefore and pray always. You find that theme throughout the history of the early church. When Peter was in prison in Acts chapter 12, He's there sitting in prison. You know what it said? The church offered constant prayer by the church on Peter's behalf. Peter was delivered in the midst of oppressors and tyrants. On the run, 
doesn't matter where we are, the promise for our God who is our helper is that he hears us, he cares for us, and he will be there to help in difficulty. That brings into light Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my helper, what shall I fear? What shall man do to me? Number three, God is my helper and he helps me by the comfort of his people. The comfort of his people. Verses four and five, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life or preserve my soul, keep my soul. He will repay my enemies for their evil, cut them off in their truth. Just for a little bit more context for this, hold your finger right here in Psalm 54 and flip back to 1 Samuel, or sorry, excuse me, Joshua chapter 15. Joshua chapter 15. We're taking a field trip this evening. I don't often do this, especially with uh, expository lessons, but we're going to take a field trip just for a moment. Look in 1 Samuel 15. Or First Samuel. Look in Joshua 15. Joshua 15. I'm not reading from the wrong passage this evening, so we're in Psalm 54, right? Okay, just making sure you're with me. Okay. Joshua 15. Joshua 15 verse 1 begins in talking about, and this is really interesting reading for us who are uh, now 4,000 years removed from what Joshua said. Joshua 15 is one of those chapters that we might possibly skip over, particularly because it's a whole lot of places and a whole lot of people and, and things and, and boundaries for a certain tribe. What does it say is the tribe boundaries for for uh, Joshua 15. What tribe is it? It's Judah. Judah is the tribe of which David has come from. Is that not right? Judah came from, or David came from the line of Judah, and Christ, who would be his descendant, came from the tribe of Judah. Jump down in your context, please, and notice one of the cities that's given there to uh, the tribe of Judah. And we're looking in Joshua chapter 15, and look at verses 21 and following. You see a number of cities that are listed there, but when you get to verse 25, you see a city that's listed there that's very applicable here to what we're talking about from Psalm 54. I see the city named Ziph. You know who it was that was ratting out David to Saul? It was the Ziphites. Now, I took this initially, and I thought, okay, these are some pagan people, and obviously a tribe of, of the land that, uh, that we didn't know about. We knew about the Canaanites and Perizzites and Hittites and Hivites and all those ites. And uh, maybe, the, 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 uh, maybe the Ziphites were just another people. It doesn't seem like that. In fact, what we find here from 1 Samuel, from Joshua, is that David is being ratted out by his own countrymen, by the people that should have had his back. And the Ziphites in ratting him out to Saul and say, isn't, Saul, isn't David hiding with us? Saul, come and get him. David is being stabbed in the back by those of his own family, if you will. Doesn't that make it hurt just a little bit more? And you look at the point that we're making here in First Sam, or, uh, where am I? Psalm 54, verses 4 and 5. And notice what he said, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who sustain my soul. And he's being ratted out and hurt by his own countrymen. I look at this and I say to myself, that's kind of the way it is sometimes. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that God's people can be the source for one of our most um, 
encouraging times? Isn't it true that God's people can be a really uplifting experience for us and a really uplifting place to be? But at the same time, isn't it true that sometimes God's people can be a real downer? God's people can really disappoint us in some powerful ways. Isn't that true? And when we get discouraged, even by our own people not behaving like they ought to, even when there's times and difficulties that come along, realize that that's not characteristic of all God's people. Aren't there people that disappoint you from time to time and really discourage you and say things that maybe unintentionally really cut you to the core and hurt you? Aren't there times that you're looking at the person going, I can't believe as a brother in Christ that you do that or sister in Christ that you'd say that to me. And yet what we've got to remember is we shouldn't blanketly characterize all of God's people as that way because there are people that will uphold your soul. There are people that will refresh and sustain. That's the meaning of the verse four there, uphold my life, sustain my soul. And God's people can still be a great source of comfort and affliction. Second Corinthians chapter one, he talks about the God of all comfort and how we use that comfort to comfort others that are, that are in the midst of distress. Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, what about uh, rebuke and sinfulness? Galatians 6, 1 through 5. If any one of you is overtaken a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. There's a great amount of comfort in realizing that we have each other's back with regard to keeping each other from sinful practices. How about love and everything we do and say and think? Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. And even though sometimes God's people can absolutely disappoint us and hurt us, we should remember they're still God's people. You know what's remarkable about David? There's a number of things that are amazing about his life. I don't read anywhere in the course and the annals of David's life where he ever lifted his hand against a fellow Israelite. Out of all the occasions, even when he's on the run and he has these rotten Ziphites who are stabbing him in the back and betraying him to one who is not even a member of that tribe, David doesn't take vengeance upon those people. That's something to think about. David turns around and realizes, these are my brethren. These are God's people. And there's a love that he has for them, even when they hurt him. God is my helper and he helps me by shaping my attitude. He helps me by shaping my attitude. There's a pause between verses 3 and 4. And that pause, that selah, is just what a lot of scholars believe is just a musical stop where you could just reflect on what's just been said. And as you chart the direction of this psalm about how he begins by asking God for salvation, God, save me by the power of your name. God, bring out your strength. Vindicate me. Hear my prayer, and talks about the oppressors and the strangers, the ones who don't think and reason the same way we do, and the ones that are tyrants and bloodthirsty men. He stops, and he says, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who sustain my soul. He'll repay my enemies for their evil and cut them off in your truth. Verses 6 and 7 speaks about these things as if he's already been delivered. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O God, for it is good, for he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire. 
upon my enemies. God is the one that David waits for. God is the one that David trusts that's going to repay their enemies for their evil. God is the one who's going to ultimately cut them off. You realize how easy it would have been for David to go on a scorched earth campaign across Judah? And anybody that got in his way that said, we're going to turn you over to Saul, that's it. I'm going to take your life. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to remove you because it's my right to do so. I'm the future king of Israel. I'm the future king. And yet you don't find, as I mentioned, him lifting a hand against God's people, including, including, including the current king of Israel, Saul. Well, there are a couple of occasions where Saul had his life laid open before David, and he absolutely could have taken it if he'd wanted it. Whether it be the difficulties and the challenges that you face, and the things, the trials and difficulties that come from unexpected places, difficult economy, job loss, loss of loved ones, family troubles, boss troubles, church troubles, any other troubles that you think of, isn't it amazing that the God of our salvation is the God who's able to shape our attitude by saying, What you need to do is endure, trust, and obey. What you need to do is you need to follow me faithfully. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint, Isaiah 40 and verse 31. Because our God is the God who delivers, we have to wait for his deliverance. And I tell you what, Tom Petty had it right when he said the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. That's why James said, my brethren, count it all joy, all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing, James 1, verses 2 through 5. Friends, it's so difficult to wait, but the more we wait and we trust in God, the more his deliverance is going to come as sweetness to us and a time of refreshing where every single time after that that we come in and we worship him together, that worship is even made sweeter because we know and we've trusted in the God who is our helper. Do you know him this evening? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, there is no other God. There is no other offer that you're going to be made that's going to be as complete, as fulfilling, and as life-changing as the offer that the God of heaven makes you this evening. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are you ready to take up your cross and follow? Maybe in the difficulty and maybe in the trials of life, maybe you haven't trusted in God as your helper this evening the way that you ought to. If we can help you to do that better. There's none of us perfect, not one, and yet we serve the perfect God who's given us everything that we need with regard to life and godliness to be able to make the changes that we need to in our lives. If you need that, if we can help you in any way, won't you make it known as we stand and sing our invitation?